Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So there's going to be much to get through in the general epistles. There's actually eight books total. So first, we're going to be beginning with the book of Hebrews. Next, we're going to be addressing the book of James. And then after that, we're going to be addressing the book of First and Second Peter. And then after that, we're going to be addressing the book of First, Second, and Third John. And then we'll be finishing with the book of Jude. So this morning is going to be a flyover, just like um, just like Bryce was saying. So that rather than actually. Uh, landing the plane. We're going to be staying at basically 30,000 feet. And uh, so we won't be able to get out and, you know, meditate and delight and soak in all that we find, but rather we're going to be looking out the windows and uh, hopefully just whetting our appetite for more as we get in our own uh, personal devotional time. So um, the way that I'm going to be outlining it is first going to be looking at the author and then looking at the audience and then looking at the date when it was uh, hypothesized to have been written, and then after that, looking at the, uh, the chapters, and then looking at the overview, so how it's actually laid out and what the content is uh, specifically, and then I'm going to be looking at the key verses that are made up within the book itself. So, starting with the book of Hebrews, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, there's actually no specific author that is mentioned, um, but there are several hypotheses uh, in terms of who actually wrote the book of Hebrews. So several different suggestions in in church history have been, number one, uh, that it was Paul, and those that believed it was Paul, according to church history, was number one, Eusebius, Origen, and Clement. They were all adamant that, that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, Martin Luther specifically believed that it was actually Apollos. And he, if you go into his writings, he has a specific line of reasoning when it comes to why he believes that it was actually Apollos that wrote it. Tertullian, the church in church history, actually believed that it was Barnabas. Uh, And then other suggestions have been Luke, has been Priscilla and Aquila, or Silas. So there is no shortage of, uh, of opinions when it comes to the author of Hebrews. Many scholars do believe that it was likely written with Paul. He addresses a specific um, a relationship with Timothy, addressing him as, our, as, uh, as, his, as his brother. Um, but like I said, it's a very contested uh, uh, discussion. Actually, in the King James uh, Bible in 1611, as you can see from the picture above, it actually says, is it up there? Okay, there we go. So it says, the epistle of Paul the apostle to the Hebrews. And that was uh, the first edition. But irregardless of who wrote the book, we know that the Holy Spirit is a divine author. And that's what we should be focused on rather than the actual, the nuances of who actually wrote it. So who is the actual audience uh, in the book of Hebrews? It's to Hebrew Christians, so Jewish converts uh, to Christianity. And it's made up of uh, 13 chapters uh, in total. So... When was the book hypothesized to have been written? So it was actually written between uh, likely 64 and 68 AD. We know that Timothy was alive at the time that it was written. And we also know that there was no evidence for the destruction of the Old Testament um, sacrificial system in Jerusalem, uh, which occurred with 70 AD. And so that's why it's believed to have been written during that time. 
Next, what is the overview? And this is actually in your handout. So in your handout, uh, anything that I've made red on the screen is going to be the, the, the fill in the blank section for you all so that you guys don't miss it. So that wouldn't be good. So um, a scholar by the name of Walter Martin, who is actually an American Baptist minister, he was the writer of the book, uh, The Kingdom of the Cult. So looking at the cult off that have broken off of Christianity. Um, so he actually wrote a very uh, nice I think synopsis, uh, but he says that it was written by a Hebrew to other Hebrews, telling the Hebrews to stop acting like Hebrews. And I think that's a, I think that's a pithy way of summarizing the book, but at the same time, I think that it's, it's very accurate. Uh, when we're looking at what was going on, many were slipping back into uh, the rites and into the, the rituals of Judaism uh, to further avoid persecution at that time because Roman law permitted Judaism to be practiced, but there was an increasing intolerance towards Christianity as we saw through the Pharisees, uh, what they were uh, claiming against Jesus about um, him claiming to be a king. And even when we see, um, uh, you know, in the gospel accounts, just their, their, the barrage of attacks upon that message itself. So, the way that um, this book is outlined, number one is looking at the superiority of Christ, first and foremost. Then he moves into uh, warnings uh, of the dangers of falling away, and then he ex and then he exhorts persecuted believers uh, to be continuing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, how is this book outlined specifically? So, the way that it's outlined is as follows. Number one, he looks at the superiority of Christ. That's Hebrews 1 through to Hebrews chapter 8. And he looks at Christ being superior to the prophets. He looks at Christ being superior to the angels uh, by virtue of his deity and by virtue of his humanity, that he is much superior to the angels and he's much superior to all the prophets of old. He looked, uh, the author then looks at that he is better than Moses because he is the son who provides a heavenly rest and he is the, the greater prophet that Moses spoke of um, in his writings. Next, uh, we also look at the fact that he is better than Aaron because his priesthood is of a superior uh, lineage and of a superior um, origin. We see that he is of a eternal order by the order of Melchizedek, not the order of the Levitical uh, a lineage of priests. So as we continue, we look at the superiority of the new covenant system, that this is much superior to um, uh, the old covenant based upon, number one, its promises. Number two, the fact that it's based upon a better sanctuary. We know that the Old Testament temple, and there was different temples at different times, but they have been utterly uh, destroyed uh, in 70 AD, and then in later periods it was built up. But we have a much better sanctuary, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so it focuses upon that. And then it looks at next, we have a better sacrifice. This book is wonderful because it doesn't just look at Christ as our high priest, but it looks at him as our sacrifice as well. So he's not just a high priest, but he is a sacrifice upon the altar uh, for us as well. And this book is really just looking at the Old Testament uh, unfolding into the new. It's, it's, it's really, really wonderful. Next, he looks at uh, different exhortations drawn from these principles of superiority. Number one, that we are to be drawing near to God and we are to be holding fast to him. Next, we should be running the, the race of faith with endurance. 
It looks at uh, several other uh, exhortations as well. This book is titled, pull it down, down, okay. Is that good? Okay. All right, perfect. If there's anything else, just let me know. All right, all right. Uh, so many of you may know a, a contemporary theologian by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson is an outstanding theologian, and uh, he actually uh, noted and claimed that this book is titled, or that this book can be summarized um, also as an epistle of warning. Now, before him, another, another um, theologian who claimed that was uh, John Owen, who was a Puritan theologian in England, and he said that this really is an epistle of warning. I'm just going to go through several of the warnings that are outlined in this book, um, and hopefully we'll be edified by them. Number one is the, uh, is the warning against drifting. So the author says that through neglect, we can easily drift away, and that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And so what's the solution of that specifically? Well, the solution is that we give more earnest heed to the Word of God and to its preaching. Next, the next warning really is uh, the warning against departing. So we know that through sin's deceitfulness, one can become hardened, and one can fall away from the living. God is what the author says. The author says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What's the solution to that? The solution is that we are to exhort one another daily and to remain steadfast uh, in the walk of faith and in our pilgrim journey. Next is a warning against disobedience. Like Israel in the wilderness, we can fail to enter our rest through disobedience according to the author. The author says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by that same sort of disobedience. And I know you can then get into these theological disputes of um, the elect not falling away, but that's really not what the author's trying to get at here. He's instructing them here, let us strive so that no one can fall by that same sort of disobedience. So we need not, again, try to be uh, uh, getting lost in the forest there, but those are important discussions to, to have. Next is, oh, sorry, the solution. Sorry, did I give the solution? Their solution is to be uh, giving diligence and heeding the word of God. The next warning really is against dullness. So the author wants to warn uh, this specific group about dullness specifically because dullness of hearing can make it difficult for us to appreciate the blessings that we have in Christ and even falling away to the point of crucifying the Son of God afresh where he says specifically, it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And so that's a warning that we're all to be mindful of, especially being in such a, um, uh, uh, such a faithful church where we're hearing the word so frequently that we think we know this. And we think that uh, we, by hearing only, have made that a practice in our lives. But we'll be getting into James next, and that is, uh, that's a warning that he has as well. So what do we do and what's, what's the solution for that? The solution is that we not only grasp the elementary principles of the oracles of God, but then we press on to spiritual maturity and perfection. Andrew Walden, 
uh, invited me to go through a book on spiritual maturity by Sinclair Ferguson. It's very edifying. If any of you guys want to read it, it's very, very good. And I think actually um, the leadership is planning on doing a book study on that as well in the future. So next is another warning against despising. It is possible to despise God's grace as to no longer have a sacrifice for sins, but to only have a fearful expectation of judgment. And that's what the author writes. Uh, He says that we are to be holding on to our confidence in Christ and to believe with endurance. Next, we have a warning against despising, or sorry, defying. (laughs) Sorry, guys. It is possible to refuse to listen to the one who now speaks from heaven. And he says, see that you do not refuse him who's speaking. The author talks about if it was possible for you to defy the oracles from God that was delivered by angels, see that you do not refuse the son of God speaking to us. And we, what's the solution for that? The solution is that we look diligently to the grace of God and receive it in such a way that we will serve him acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. So, Many of you likely know the, the hall of faith, that wondrous hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. I will not have enough time and I will not be going through each and every one of these uh, wonderful instances of faith. But what we can do is just briefly touch upon several uh, uh, examples that we have in scripture. So number one we have, um, that I'd just like to draw our, our attention to would be Abraham and his wonderful faith and his wonderful faithfulness, even to the point of God calling him to sacrifice his son. And we see that he was faithful right until the end when the Lord delivered him from that. We also have, here we are, who's next? David. So we have David. We see David's courage. We see David's faith. We see a man after God's own heart. And we see him even when the whole army and the even king of Israel refused to go against that, that, uh, that I was going to say monster, but uh, that enemy of Israel with him stepping forward in full faith. Uh, a wonderful, wonderful story. But he was not without failures. Another instance that we have is Daniel. And so Daniel being in that lion's den, that wonderful prayerfulness of Daniel and just the the example that we have in him through that. Or we also have the, perhaps one of the greatest deliverances in the whole Old Testament, God delivering his people through the Red Sea by Moses. And just a wonderful, wonderful picture of the Lord's deliverance, which specifically is pointing forward um, uh, to Christ to us being in slavery. Um, And so it's a wonderful, wonderful story. All right, moving to the next slide here, we're gonna be looking at several key verses. Number one, I believe that this opening passage is full of such grandeur that it's comparable with the opening of uh, of the Gospel of John. And I believe that it's even comparable to the point of Genesis 1-1 for the reason that it outlines not only um, Jesus' deity, but it outlines Jesus' inexpressible glory. It outlines that he's the creator of the entire universe. He's the upholder of the entire universe. He's the heir of the entire universe. And it does that in like three verses. It's an amazing, it's an amazing opening. And I think it'd be good if we all, if we all perhaps even uh, in your own devotional time even uh, memorize this text. And I'll just read it to us here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets 
but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So a rich, rich, rich text that we would be all uh, edified to, to be thinking much upon and meditating upon. Another great text would be Hebrews uh, chapter 4, 14 through 16. Uh, Let me see, I got it up there, good. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, uh, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So again, a beautiful, beautiful text. If any of you have read the book Gentle and Lowly, the book Gentle and Lowly is actually drawing much, much, much from a Puritan writing titled The Heart of Christ by Thomas Goodwin, a beautiful book expounding and expositing that text specifically in Hebrews 4 with some beautiful application and some beautiful meditations for us as well. Even the picture's edifying. All right, the next verse is a definition of faith that most of us would be well acquainted with, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So again, a beautiful text there. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have been, or sorry, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So again, a rich book. It's very, very good. So now we're going to be moving over to the book of James. Who wrote the book of James? That is not a a facetious question because there are several apostles by the name of James. So the actual writer who wrote this was Jesus's half-brother, James. And with that, this James was actually um, residing over the church of Jerusalem at that time. And this James is also referenced by Paul in Galatians to a, as being a pillar of the church. According to church history, uh, this James is also referenced to being called James the Just. And he also is referenced in church history as well to be known by his camel knees. And they say that he has camel knees because he prayed so frequently and so fervently and so earnestly that he actually developed calluses over his very knees. Ultimately, he was clubbed to death um, in, a, in a wonderful story of martyrdom for the faith. But this James is not to be confused with several other Jameses that we have in the New Testament. Um, so we have James, the brother of John, the son of, uh, you know, the sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, so we have that James, and that James was also in the, that James was actually in the inner circle of three of, of Jesus's ministry. So he was a close, close disciple. But then we also have another James in the apostle, uh, in, in the groups of the apostles, uh, son of Alphaeus. So we have Jesus's half brother, and then two apostles, um, 
uh, as well. So we are not to, 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 to well, we are to think that way, okay? All right. So uh, let me make sure I got my slides up to, uh, according to my, my screen here. Okay, so who is this book actually written to? This book was written to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, as outlined in James 1.1. And uh, he's writing to Christians throughout the Roman Empire facing various trials and needing further teaching on true and on practical religion. This book is actually broken down into five chapters. Oh, I don't think it's on the slide. Oh, sorry. Sorry, everyone. It's not on the, it's cut off from the, from the screen there, but it's five chapters. So this book is, the book's overview is uh, the following. Number one, this book has uh, been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And I think that's very fitting. Uh, because the Proverbs, as you know, is a very instructional, it's very practical. It's really, um, uh, you know, a book that we are to look to much instruction uh, towards, and that is in the Old Testament. And really, in the New Testament, this would be quite comparable in terms of the amount of instruction that we have, because James is practically reminding Christians how to be living with straightforward exhortations as he balances right belief with right behavior. So Jesus, or sorry, James has a total of 108 verses in this book, 108 verses, and more than half of them, 60 of them, are direct uh, commands for us. So more than half the book are direct commandments for the Christian. So a very practical, practical book that we should be drawing much instruction from. So how is this book outlined, and what does this book cover? So first, James looks at true religion endures trials and it endures temptations. And I think that's one of your fill in the blanks there. And it endures trials and temptations with joy and it does so with patience. And it doesn't just do so with joy and patience, but it does so with wisdom from God. And with wisdom from God, it doesn't just do that, but it also does that with a proper perspective. Uh, and in addition to a proper perspective, it does so with an understanding of temptation. That the temptation that we have in our own hearts is not ultimately from God, that temptation to sin. That is from the principle of indwelling sin that we have in our lives, but God does not tempt us to sin. That is the sin that dwells within us. So we are to, we are to be mortifying that day in, day, uh, or day in and day out, but that temptation to sin is not from God. Next, we do it with an awareness of the Father's goodness. And uh, this is that beautiful text where it talks about God being the Father of, of all lights and that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Next, true religion. Oh, let me make sure I got my slides up to, oh, there we go. Okay, here we go. True religion consists in doing and not in just hearing. So with that, we should be swift to hear, and we should not be hearers only, but doers. For those that are hearers only deceive themselves. So ultimately, no one willingly wants to be deceived. Not one person in the history of the universe is willingly and wanting to be deceived. But it's possible if we hear the word without practicing it, we will deceive ourselves and think that we are something that we are not. We should, be, we should not show any personal 
favoritism at all in the Christian journey. We should also show our, uh, our faith by our works. This is um, also explained by Jesus, looking at the tree by the fruit. So this is no new teaching. This is just expanding upon in a way of uh, teaching it in, in a little bit slightly different manner, or not even a different manner, same manner. So next, he talks about that, that true religion displays wisdom and it does not just display speech. So with that, he outlines the danger of the tongue and he has some beautiful images looking at the, you know, the, the, the bridle and the bit of a horse. He looks at uh, even the, the rudder of a ship. He looks at the destruction when it comes to a fire. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very uh, vivid when it looks at the danger of the human tongue. It looks at the difference between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom, that earthly wisdom is just base and, and carnal, and, is, and he even says demonic, um, and that there's a big, big difference between earthly wisdom and spiritual wisdom. Next, he outlines that true religion befriends God through humility. He outlines how to be an enemy of God, which is through pride. We see that that pride is the very sin of Satan, him wanting to elevate himself, him wanting to exalt himself. And we see that God opposes the proud. But God gives grace to the humble. We see how to be drawing near to God, which is with a humble and with a meek and lowly, contrite, broken, penitent heart. That is how we approach God in in no way uh, else. Next, we see that true religion is blessed through patience and is blessed through prayer and is blessed through love. We see the curse of rich oppressors. Oh, one second, I gotta make sure I got all my slides up to, up to snuff here. There we go. Um, it outlines the curse of rich oppressors, um, which is uh, a, a big warning for us how to be, uh, once we are in, in a place, he's even talking about the rich, to be stewarding our finances and to be stewarding our positions well and not to be abusing those that are beneath us. Again, he has some pretty vivid animation, or some pretty vivid descriptions of, uh, of, of that there as well. Next, he looks at the blessing of prayer, and he looks at the blessing of love for those that are in error, that if we, uh, it looks at covering the multitude of sins for bringing a brother back uh, that's in error. So, that is the outline of the book of James. Some several, some several key verses is, number, uh, is James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Another verse, James chapter 1, verse 19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And that's a, that's a good text because even in the Psalms, we see that there can be a, a holy indignation. There can be a holy anger. Even in Jesus's life, we see this uh, uh, manifested, but there is a way that it can also, uh, that we have to be aware that it, that it will not be uh, sinful because um, uh, just make sure that we have that a balanced view of anger when it comes to the Christian life. Next, the next verse is James chapter 2, verse 17 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? And he then expounds that you are a fool and you are a foolish person if you believe that, um, that you can have faith that is not manifested by works and that faith being um, fruitful that, that you can be manifesting or that others can, that others can be visibly appreciating in your life that fruit that is there. And if all you have is a profession or a notion um, or a mere intellectual um, understanding or assent of the truth, that is, that is not faith at all. Next, James chapter five, verse 16 through 17, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently. And we look at the, the famine that came across that land, and we look at his prayer initially, we look at the three years of the famine, we look at him uh, praying, and then the famine ceasing, and it says that he had a nature just like yours or just like ours. Very encouraging text. All right, so we're through Hebrews, we're through James. Next, we're gonna be getting to the book of 1 Peter. So the author is the apostle Peter. Um, and who was Peter writing to at this time? Peter was actually writing to, as he outlines in chapter one, verse one, this is written to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and in Bithynia. So he outlines clearly who he is writing to. How many chapters are there? There's, there's five chapters, the same amount as in the book of James. We see that... Um, uh, or I'll be going to the overview in a little bit, but uh, when was this book hypothesized to have been written? It's actually between uh, 60 and 65 AD, and the overview is that he is writing to believers who have been dispersed throughout the ancient world and were under intense persecution, teaching them to endure that persecution without bitterness and to, and to do so without losing hope. The key theme of this book, and this is a fill in the blank, is, um, is hope in the midst of suffering and to be living holily in a hostile world. And this is a book that we could be taking much from living in a very hostile world and a very godless um, uh, world to be doing so patiently and to be doing so um, not with bitterness. So how is this book outlined? This book is outlined as such. Number one, this, is, this begins with an introduction that this is from Peter, an apostle of Christ, and he's writing to the elect exiles in, uh, of the dispersion, and then he gets to talking about our salvation in Christ. He talks about that we have been caused to be born again to a living hope, and he speaks about the joy that we have in the midst of, of our suffering. He talks about that we as Christians, or at, you know, at that time he's talking to Christians being served through the prophets and that we have been served through the apostles as well. So we're in a very privileged position. Next, he looks at our duties in Christ in light of our privileges, that we have a call to holiness, that we have a call to brotherly love, that we have a call to spiritual growth. These are all callings that we have. And then he moves to looking at our, um, our, our duties in light of our positions, our positions as sojourners in this earth, as pilgrims, some, some, some translations have it. Uh, he looks at our positions as citizens being in submission uh, to the government. And even that, you can make sure you have a balanced view of that and how to be understanding that, that text. Um, he also looks at our, uh, 
the duties of servants or of slaves at that time. He looks at the duties of wives and as husbands having a complementary role in marriage. He looks at uh, the role that we have as brethren towards one another. He looks at the role that we have as sufferers for righteousness sake. It looks at our role as those who are, uh, who are awaiting the coming of Christ. Next, he looks at, our, uh, it looks at our duties in Christ in light of our persecution. So he, looks, he, he, he instructs us to rejoice in God and to be glorifying God in midst of our suffering and in midst of this harsh persecution that they were undergoing. He tells us to trust in the will of God. He, tells, um, um, he also instructs us to be fulfilling our specific roles. He instructs elders and those that are overseeing the flock. And he also instructs the younger um, individuals of the church and what their duties are in the flock as well. He also instructs us, just as we saw in James, to humble ourselves before God. We also see that he instructs us to resist the devil. We have that text where we see Satan as a roaring lion wanting to consume and devour the, uh, the Christian, um, who, Satan who is our enemy, and, we, and that's in this book as well. Next, he then moves to his conclusion where, uh, I hope this is showing, okay, yeah, good. And he looks at a prayer for God's blessing for us, and he looks at final greetings and a bestowal of peace upon these believers. Next, several key verses. Uh, number one, we have First um, Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Next, we have another rich text, 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not, sorry, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a jo- uh, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and is filled with glory. So he looks, that, he, he looks at the fact that our belief also has a constituent of joy and that affection and that joy is inexpressible. Again, we have to be seeing, is this agreeable with our life? Is this agreeable with our religious affections? Um, some of you may know Jonathan Edwards, the very beginning of this book, he outlines that text specifically, 1 Peter 1.8, asking the question, do you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible? And is that inexpressible joy filled with glory? And uh, so if, if any of you don't know Jonathan Edwards, um, Bryce was telling us about him, so we should know him. He is uh, widely acknowledged as America's most important and most influential uh, a theologian in the entirety of American history. He was a pastor uh, in Connecticut and a key figure in America's Great Awakening, along with George Whitfield, by God's uh, spirit. And uh, he was also the president of Princeton. This book, like I said, is, 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 is outlining the difference between true religion and false religion, where you've been deceived or where you are um, uh, not having true religious affections. It's a very edifying book, um, but you have to get your thinking cap on because it's pretty deep. Okay, so we also have 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own, or sorry, a people for his own 
possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, a beautiful text. Another one, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So again, a beautiful text. Lastly, 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Next, we're going to be moving to the book of 2 Peter. So uh, with 2 Peter, the author's still Peter. Uh, he's writing to an uh, audience that is the same as 1 Peter, and he outlines that because he says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And that's, that's outlined in his letter. This is made up of three chapters, so it's shorter, and the date is, uh, bet- is between 65 and 68 AD is what scholars estimate. Uh, and the overview... This is, I think that you guys need to write this down here. I think this is going to be read. Yep. Peter's focus in this letter is on spiritual maturity. It's on false teachers, and it's on the anticipation of Christ's return. So how is this book outlined, and what's the outline of this book? Well, uh, number one, he outlines that, uh, or he outlines, it, he begins it with an introduction, where he says that this, is, uh, this letter is from Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained the precious faith. He commands us to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ with, uh, because of the precious gifts that we have through his word and through his promises and all this which is from God. We see that we have all things that pertain to life and all things that pertain to godliness in his word specifically, that we have exceedingly great and precious promises that, quote, make us partakers of the divine nature. And I'll be getting into that text in a little bit. Next, we are to be abounding in the knowledge of Christ. We are to supply our faith with Christ-like graces. Those Christ-like graces are virtue, uh, knowledge, self-control, a steadfastness, and it continues. We are also to make our calling and make our election sure and certain. Peter wants us to do that. Uh, We are to be stirred up by careful reminder. Peter stirred up because he knows that his death is imminent, that he will be killed very shortly as he is writing this, and that there's also this this, this next focus is also the grounds and basis for many apologetic uh, 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 approaches, which is that we have a eyewitness testimony and the prophetic word of God that we should be heeding. Next, we are to be aware of false teachers, just as Bryce instructed us several weeks ago. Um, number one, we are to be aware of their destructiveness because they have destructive heresies in their mouths. They do so um, and, and approach doing so with destructive methodologies, and they do have destructive ends um, in their lives and also for their, for their, uh, for their personal lives as well. Next, and looks at their doom. We see the example that Peter outlines for the angels who have sinned, that God has cast them into hell and he has committed them unto chains of gloomy darkness. So a very, very vivid and a very harrowing uh, a description that we have and that God wants us to have um, of these um, who have disobeyed. We see the example of the flood 
where he preserved Noah, who was a herald of righteousness, and seven others. And aside from those seven others with Noah, he destroyed the entire ancient world. We also have the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, who he turned into, uh, he turned those cities and the surrounding cities into, uh, into ashes, making them an example of what will happen and what is going to happen to the ungodly. God will deliver the godly, and he will punish the ungodly. And that is what Peter outlines. Next, he looks at their depravity, that they revile against authority and they revile with, with great uh, pleasure and they revolt against the right and against the true way. It looks at their deception, that they, have been, uh, that they are uh, deceptive in their methodologies and in their promises, whose, la- whose latter end really is worse than the beginning. We are to be looking for the Lord's return, even despite the scoffers who have... Um, claimed otherwise. Uh, they have forgotten that the world was destroyed by water and in uh, times past. Uh, we are not to be forgetting that. And we are to be reminded uh, that the Lord is not bound by time and that he is long-suffering. Next, the, the, the Lord of the day will come as a thief in the night. It will come swiftly, just like a thief. Um, we should, one second, for which, yeah, we should be um, ready with a holy conduct looking, looking for the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. That is what we are to be fixed upon and to be focused upon with righteousness, or sorry, where righteousness does dwell. We are to be aware lest we fall and we are to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are several key verses. Uh, the key verses are Second Peter 1, Uh, three through four, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, having escaped, oh sorry, so that you, excuse me, uh, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The next text, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And the last text, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So his desire really is that all should be reaching repentance, but we have to reconcile that with the verse right before and again, have a right understanding of that. Next, we're going to be moving to the letter of 1 John, a really, really good book, and we're going to be doing that next, or not semester, excuse me, we're going to be doing that next after Philippians. So, who is the author of uh, of 1 John? It's, It's the Apostle John. And uh, with that, this is uh, one of the five New Testament books that was written by, uh, by John. John wrote five books. Number one, the Gospel of John, first, second, third John, and lastly is the book of Revelation. So he wrote five books, many um, claim and many hold to the position, uh, as I do as well, that this is very likely the most intimate friend of, of Jesus. And the reason that, we, uh, that, that many individuals hold that is that he was 
uh, one of the three individuals at the Mount of Transfiguration. He was one of the three at the raising of Jairus' daughter. He was one of the three in the, inner, in the, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, one of the three that was invited to even a closer position. He was the one that laid his head upon Christ's bosom. He was the one that Jesus bestowed the responsibility to care for his own mother. He did not bestow that upon Peter. He also um, entrusted him with the book of Revelation, that he chose um, the Apostle John for the apocalyptic revelation and entrusted that he would be um, having that vision as well. But that's not terribly. All I'm trying to get with that is that we are to certainly listen with much, much um, earnestness to what he says because he is a very, very dear and intimate friend of our Lord. This is made up of um, oh, sorry, not chapters. I think audience is next. Yeah, audience. So who is he writing to? Well, there is actually no specific audience that is mentioned in, um, in 1 John, but John did traditionally minister among the churches in Asia Minor in his latter years, uh, which would be modern-day Turkey. And so this was very likely written to one of those uh, churches or maybe several of those in, his, uh, or in these congregations. So what are the chapters and how is this outlined? Um, there's actually five chapters when it comes to uh, the, the book of First John. It was likely written between 80 and 95, likely around the same time that the Gospel of John, uh, Second, Third John uh, were, were also written. This book has four purposes that John says, I am writing this to you so that. So he outlines specific purposes where he wants them to know why he is ultimately writing uh, uh, this to them. And there are four. First is uh, that these things I write to you that your joy may be full. So he, he wants believers to have joy and he wants their joy to be full. And that is in 1 John 1, 4. He also has a second purpose that he outlines. These things I write to you so that you may not sin. He's writing this to them so that they would not sin. That's a purpose of him writing this letter. Another, um, uh, let me get that up here. Perfect. Another is that these things I have written to you that you would know that you have eternal life. He wants believers, his will is that believers would be having assurance of salvation. And he also says that uh, he wants believers to be uh, continuing to believe uh, in the name of Jesus. So that's the fourth, uh, uh, that's the fourth purpose that John outlines, that we would have joy, that joy would be full, that we may not sin, that we would know that we have eternal life, and that we would continue to believe. What's the outline the, or the overview? The overview is, First John is written to further expound living in fellowship with God and to give believers assurance of their salvation as they confront the errors of a prevailing heresy of that day, which was Gnosticism, which was a philosophy that held that spirit is good, and that matter is evil. And in, in addition to it just being wrong, what was, why was he also wanting with so much fervor to be fighting that? It's because it was leading to false theories of Christ himself. There are many parallelisms, some beautiful parallelisms in 1 John, and uh, these, these parallelisms are, are striking. So number one would be Christ versus the anti-Christ. Number two would be light versus darkness. Number three would be truth versus falsehood. Number four would be righteousness versus sin. Number five would be the love of the Father versus the love of the world. Uh, and number six would be uh, the Spirit of God versus the Spirit of the Antichrist. 
a dominant note in this letter is love. I don't have enough time, and I will not be going through all of them, but, any, uh, but we have several texts there. Um, I don't have enough time also to be going through uh, now because I'm just looking at uh, how much time I got left, but we see that there, he does outline assurance of eternal life. How is this book outlined? I'm likely going to have to go through this quite quickly, but this book is, it begins with being the word of life. He then moves to the fact that God is light. Oh, yeah. What's up here? Oh, yeah. Sorry, I got to get that advanced here. Sorry, guys. I'm getting excited. I see that I only have like 12 minutes left. All right. It's all good, though. Second John, third John are like one page. They're, they're not long. Okay. So it begins with a prologue of the word of life and the fact that God is light outlines that we are to be walking in the light because God is light and we are to resist sin. We are to obey the commandment to love and to know God and keep his commandments, that we have a new commandment to love as Jesus loved us. We are also to know the stages of the Christian um, uh, journey. One second, let me make sure I got everything all. Um, there we go. We are to be knowing the stages of the Christian life um, because there's different commandments for each walk and stage for the Christian life, the little children, young men, and fathers. We are to be warned of these, uh, the enemies of the faith. Um, we are to be aware of the world that is an enemy of the faith and to be aware of the anti-Christ. One second, let me get everything here. There we go. All right, we are to live like children of God, to be confident and ready for his coming. We are to be righteous and not sin. Next, it's the fact that God is love. We are to love one another in action and with confidence. Um, we are to be testing the spirits. There are different spirits. We are to be testing each of them. We are to be loving one another. He then circles around in a circular fashion. We are to love one another again uh, because God loves us and lives within us. We are to obey God and, and experience the victory of faith and believe in the Son of God and enjoy eternal life. There we go. All right, and... Also, he then gets to his conclusion that uh, we are to have confidence as children of God and we are to know the characteristics of the children of God, that we should know that we have eternal life, that we are to be confident in prayer and we are to not continue in sin and keep ourselves from idols. All right. So, unfortunately, I won't have enough time to be going through um, each and every verse here for First John, but we have some beautiful, beautiful verses here that we can just be thinking upon and meditating upon, uh, because I do also want to get to Second John and Third John, so just right now you can scan through those and be edified and, and, and get back to them in your own private time. And if you don't, we're doing it next, so there we go. All right, letter of Second John. So Second John is written by John. It's written to the same, it's written to a different audience. It's written to a woman uh, and her children. Now, this could be referring to a literal woman and her family. Um, some scholars believe that this could be a church that's meeting in a woman's home, and some hold to the position that this could be a woman in general, or sorry, that this could be the church in general. This is only made up of 13 verses, as some of you, or as most of you would be knowing with your Bible reading plans, that this is like half of a page. <clears throat> and uh, it's the shortest book in the entirety of the New Testament. The date was likely written between 80 and 95. 
So how is this book actually outlined? It's outlined beginning uh, with an introduction to the elect lady and her children. It offers praise and encouragement for those walking in the truth. It focuses upon love, 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 love one another. He then says that what is love? Because it's not some nebulous term. It's that we are to be walking according to God's commandments and according to that new commandment that we have as outlined in 1 John. Verses seven through 11 focus on false teachers. We see that even this apostle of love is adamantly set against false teachers because of his focus and his love upon the truth and the message of Christ. Next, John calls them, which are the the false teachers, the deceiver and the anti-Christ. We are to be on guard against the lies and take no part in the evil um, of their practices. He then shares that he wants to to be visiting them face to face uh, so that they would have joy and their joy would be complete. Very happy, isn't it? Or not happy, very joyful. That's what I mean. All right, some key verses, unfortunately. I won't have enough time to be getting through this. Um, I'm not sure if we're doing this after 1 John, but if not, just read it yourself. It's like half, half a page. All right, moving to 3 John. 3 John is also written to a different audience. This is actually written to the beloved Gaius, uh, who was a believer who was in the early church uh, at the time. He was a leader. Uh, this is the second shortest book in the New Testament. It's made up of just two verses longer than uh, second. Second John, so it's maybe 15 verses in total, and this is believed to have been written during that same time. How's this book outlined? How does he, how does he approach um, his, his, uh, writing this book? Well, it begins with an introduction to Gaius. He then looks at the positive traits of Gaius. He, he focuses that he treats the brethren well, and he treats traveling Christians well also. They speak highly of him amongst the churches, so we see that he's held to very high esteem among the churches. We see that the traveling, the traveling teachers were supported by him as missionaries, uh, as they should be by us and as they are by us. Verses 9 and 10, we see he outlines the evil of Diatrophes, who was a proud church leader who disregarded the authority of Gaius, and he disregarded the authority of the apostle John. John hoped to rebuke him and to uh, rebuke his actions against God's people. Verse 11 emphasizes that we are to be imitating good. We are not to imitate evil. And then he offers a blessing and passes on greetings from others and asks them to greet their friends by name. I won't have enough time to be going through key verses. I was very ambitious. I was hoping that I could have time, but I don't. All right. So like I said, read this on your own time and be edified. All right. This is the last book. So we're, we're just there. I got five minutes left. So now I can kind of tone back a little bit. All right. So who is the author of Jude? This was actually another brother of Jesus or another half brother of Jesus. Um, so this is Jude. And he's also, um, uh, as you look through the gospel accounts, this is very likely um, uh, the brother that was named Judas. But later on, he's now called Jude. Very likely, uh, one of the several hypotheses that the the church um, scholar, that scholars have held is that after Judas Iscariot, very likely people did not want to be called Judas. But there's several theories as to why the name was Judas and then Jude. But Anyways, there we go. So who is the audience that he is writing to? He's writing to a general audience rather than a specific congregation. This is made up of one chapter, or sorry, yeah, one chapter, 25 verses. So again, it's, it's quite a short um, book if you just want to read it um, at the coffee table over lunch and your own devotional, you will be edified. 
Now, when was this written? This was, written, this was written, um, sometime between 60 and 80. Um, there's many core themes that are similar between the writings of Peter and the writings of Jude, especially when it comes to false teachers and especially when it comes to the return of, or sorry, yeah, especially when it comes to uh, false teachers. So scholars really are divided on which, one's, which one came before the other. Both also address apostasy. Apostasy is um, believers turning from the faith or so-called believers turning from the faith. Now, Peter says that um, apostasy is something which would happen in his writings, whereas Jude says that apostasy is something that is happening. So because of Jude saying this is now happening and Peter saying this is something that will happen, most people think that Jude was actually written after Second uh, Peter, but like I said, it's also, it's, 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 um, you're gonna find bo- uh, people on both sides of that, of that, uh, of that issue. How's this book, um, uh, or what's the overview of this book? Well, uh, this book warns against false teachers. It talks about the judgment of false teachers and how they are infiltrating the church and hurting the church. He changes intent about rather than writing about common sal- the common salvation they share to writing and addressing that specifically. All right, moving to the outline and then we'll be done. So how's this book outlined? He begins with a greeting uh, to them, a beautiful uh, greeting. He then outlines his purpose, that his purpose has changed and says that certain people have crept in unnoticed long ago who were designated for this condemnation. Um, And then he gets to God's judgments. He looks at the people of Israel who Jesus saved out of the land of Egypt and then afterward destroyed those who did not believe and there's some textual criticism there in terms of whether it was Jesus or whether it was God. Manuscripts, some say Jesus and some say God, but we do, we do know that that, that that did happen. Another one of God's judgments that Jude wants to bring to remembrance of uh, the people of God is number two, the angels, which is also who um, Peter alludes to as well, that there are angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling, and he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. It then looks at Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, if this sounds heavy, it is heavy, but this is nothing. He's not talking about anything that Jesus has not addressed. Jesus talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus talks about the angels. Jesus talks about the people of Israel. And we see that Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual immorality and unnatural desire. Unnatural desire is a way of saying um, about homosexual practices that was evidenced by Lot and towards the angels as well, and that they serve in as example undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. It then looks at Cain, Balaam, and Korah, and looks at false teachers, uh, just their character as well. And then the note changes, and now he focuses upon... Um, believers uh, and exhorting them to be building up their faith, that we are to be building up our faith, um, or sorry, building up ourselves in the most holy faith, that we are to be praying in the Holy Spirit, we are to keep ourselves within the love of God and to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, that leads to eternal life and to have mercy on those who doubt, save those or save others by snatching them out of the fire and to others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And then lastly, he offers a beautiful doxology. I was planning on sharing that beautiful doxology with you all, but we're at 10 o'clock, so I won't be able to. And so um, anyways, these are just some key verses that you guys can all read on your free time. 
that last verse is that beautiful doxology uh, that, he, that he writes to God's people. And we are there. It's 10 o'clock, and we just did eight books. And so, anyways, there you go. Yeah. Yeah.